please stand for the reading of God's Word. Today's scripture will be Mark chapter 14, verses 10 through 25, which is on page 496 of the Bibles in the Seatbacks. If you do not have a Bible, please accept the Bible in the Seatback as a free gift from Northridge. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad, and they promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, it broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take this, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it, and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Thus says God's word. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you love your church. Jesus, you love your body, you love your bride more than I ever could. And Jesus, we thank you that you will build your church, that nothing can stand against you in the building of your church. And Lord, I thank you for your promise that you have made to us, that your word will never go out empty. It will always accomplish what you send it out to accomplish, Lord. And We trust in that promise this morning. Father, I pray that your word um, would be preached clearly this morning, that your gospel would be proclaimed clearly. Lord, I'm, I'm very well aware of my insufficiencies, but I trust in the power of your Holy Spirit to speak and to work through a weak vessel, a jar of clay. And so we ask, Lord, that you would glorify yourself 
and edify your church in the proclamation of the word this morning. All of our trust is in you, Lord, and we trust that you will accomplish all of your purposes. Um, And so, Lord, in that we place all of our confidence, all of our hope. We give you all glory and honor and praise this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can be seated. One of the better-known stories of the Bible is the story of Joseph, which we find in Genesis 37 through 50. Now, you may be wondering, what in the world does the story of Joseph have to do with the passage that we just read? And my hope is that by the time we're finished this morning, that will be very clear to you. But Joseph, if you'll remember, I'm going to give you the short version of the story this morning. Joseph was the son of Jacob. He had 11 brothers, which were to make up the 12 tribes of Israel. And Joseph, when he was young, he had dreams that showed his brothers and his parents bowing down to him and paying him homage, essentially him being in a position of authority over them. And and like any little brother would do, he thought it was a good idea to go and tell his older brothers about these incredible dreams he was having. And his older brothers, as we know, were very jealous of him, and they plotted together as to how they might get rid of this little brother of theirs. In the end, we read that they sell him as a slave to the country of Egypt, and they tell Jacob, their father, that he's been killed, torn apart by wild animals. So Joseph goes as a slave off to Egypt, but Even in Egypt, as a slave, God is with Joseph, and God blesses Joseph. And he ends up being bought by Potiphar, the captain of the guard. He's an important Egyptian official. And Joseph is put in charge over all of Potiphar's household because God is with him, and God blesses him. So things are beginning to look like they're getting better for Joseph until Potiphar's wife becomes a little bit too interested in him, and she attempts to seduce him, and when she fails, she falsely accuses Joseph of trying to take advantage of her. And so Joseph is thrown into prison, the key is thrown away, and Joseph is forgotten about. Have you ever been through seasons of life where you just cannot seem to catch a break, right? It's like one thing happens, you finally get over that, and then the next thing, right? This this is Joseph's life. But God, even in prison, God is still with Joseph. God is still blessing Joseph. And God, in his providence, allows for Joseph to interpret a dream for Pharaoh's former cupbearer. Now, we fast forward a couple of years. Joseph is still in prison. But Pharaoh has a disturbing dream, and no one in all of the land is able to interpret this dream for Pharaoh. But the cupbearer, who is who has in the meantime been restored to his place, he remembers Joseph in prison, and he tells Pharaoh about a Hebrew slave who was able to perfectly interpret for him a dream 
that he had. And so Joseph is called before Pharaoh. He interprets his dream. He warns him of a severe famine that is to come. And he advises him to prepare for this famine by stockpiling food for the coming years so that the nation of Egypt may survive. And the result of all of this is that Pharaoh makes Joseph the second in command over the entire nation of Egypt, one of the most powerful nations in the world at that time. And because of Joseph's authority, he is then able to bring his father, bring his brothers, bring his family to Egypt and give them the best of the land that they might be preserved and not die because of this severe famine that's affected not only Egypt, but also all of the nations around it. Now, I want you to think for a moment of what Joseph's brothers must have felt when they stood before him for the first time, knowing who he was. Joseph had the authority to throw them in prison for the rest of their lives. Joseph had the authority to put them to death on the spot. And they were 100% absolutely guilty of having betrayed their brother, selling him into slavery, and then lying about it to their father and to their family year after year after year after year. And after Jacob dies... Uh, we read that his brothers, they come and they fall at Joseph's feet and they beg him for mercy. Have mercy on us. We are your servants. And this is Joseph's response. Keep in mind everything that has happened to him. Sold as a slave for pieces of silver. Falsely accused. Thrown into prison. This is his response in Genesis 50. Verse 20, Joseph says to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And hundreds of years later, there would be another man betrayed by someone closest to him, sold for the price of a slave, falsely accused, and put to death on a cross. But these words from Genesis 50 ring out prophetically and foreshadow exactly what we see in our text this morning. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. So let's let's get into our text this morning. I want to begin in verse verses 10 and 11. It says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, one of the twelve disciples, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, Jesus, as we've been talking about, Jesus, since his triumphal entry, he is now in Jerusalem or right outside of Jerusalem in Bethany. And Jesus is preparing for his death, 
right? Jesus understands fully the sovereign plan of the Father. And Jesus understands that his time has now come. And the leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Herodians, have been plotting to kill Jesus since all the way back in Mark chapter 3, where Jesus had the audacity to heal a man on the Sabbath day. See, Jesus, as we've talked about, Jesus was a threat to their authority. And so Jesus needed to go. And Judas Iscariot, who is a false disciple, not a believer, Judas provides them with the opportunity that they have been looking for and waiting for. You see, they need to make an inconspicuous arrest of Jesus without attracting a lot of attention, without attracting the ire of the crowds. And so Judas will tell them where Jesus will be and help identify Jesus at night so that they can arrest him in secret. That's the plan. And Judas is happy to do all of this for the measly price of 30 pieces of silver. Now, Mark doesn't mention specifically the 30 pieces of silver, merely that he was promised money. But the Gospel of Matthew tells us that Jesus is sold and betrayed by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. And 30 pieces of silver was the price in that time of a common slave. And so Judas sold the Son of God into the hands of wicked men for the price of a common slave. Just as Joseph was sold by his brothers as a slave for pieces of silver. Judas meant it for evil. Satan meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. And as Judas is seeking for the right moment to betray his Lord and Master, Jesus is preparing to celebrate his final Passover with his disciples. We read in verse 12, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, it's important to understand that the Passover was the most important, the most sacred Jewish festival festival and celebration that they had the entire year. And there were specific preparations that needed to be made in order to celebrate the Passover meal appropriately. First of all, the Passover must be celebrated in Jerusalem. Right? You couldn't, you couldn't just eat the Passover at home, um, wherever you happen to be at that time of year. Um, it had to be celebrated in Jerusalem. And the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed at the temple and then roasted so that it might be ready for eating. There were also a number of side dishes that needed to be prepared to eat and celebrate the Passover meal. And so the disciples question is a natural, right? They're saying, Jesus, there's a lot to do. We have a lot to prepare. Where do you want us to go in order to make preparations so that we can all eat this most important meal and have this celebration together? And Jesus provides them with some very specific instructions in verses 13 to 16. 
It says, and he sent two of his disciples, and we don't know which ones, but he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, Jerusalem, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So Jesus tells his disciples to go into the city and look for a man who is carrying a jar of water. Now, keep in mind that Jerusalem, at the time of the Passover, probably had a million or more people there. There, there, were, there were some estimates that there were up to two million people at the time of the Passover. And Jesus says, hey, just you know, wander into the city of, of a couple million and look for some dude carrying a jar of water, right? That seems like maybe not like the greatest instructions ever. It, it really seems like they'd be looking for a needle in a haystack here. Uh, but the reality is, is that during that time, carrying water was considered a woman's job. And so men did not typically draw water from the well and carry water. That was, that was the job for women to do. We see that in John chapter 4, where Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well, right? And, and she's there doing her job of getting water and carrying it back to the home to use. Now, my, my grandparents' generation, even my parents' generation to some extent, but my grandparents' generation, they often divided tasks in that way. So it was the wife's job to do all of the cooking and the preparation of the food. And I have many, many memories of my grandmother cooking in the kitchen, preparing food for the family. I have exactly zero memories of my grandfather doing anything in the kitchen ever. I don't know if he could have even found the kitchen or if he knew where it was, right? It would have been very shocking for me to walk into the home and see my grandfather preparing supper for the family. It would have been equally shocking to walk outside and see my five foot, 90 pound grandmother mowing the lawn. It just, it didn't happen. They had their defined roles and they stuck to those roles and those tasks. And that's what's happening here. Jesus is telling his disciples to look for something that would have been very uncommon to see in that time, a man carrying a jar of water. And they are then to follow this man, right? Once you see him, just follow him Go wherever he goes, whatever house he goes into, you go into that house and ask the master of the home if the guest room is ready for the teacher to use. Now, we do not know, because we're not told, if Jesus had perhaps made some prior arrangements with the master of this home to celebrate the Passover there, or if this was a miraculous work 
of God in orchestrating all of the events. Scripture does not tell us. My opinion, um, which really ultimately doesn't matter, um, but my opinion is that this is another example of one of Jesus' many miracles where he is sovereignly orchestrating these events. Regardless, we're told that the disciples go into the city and they find everything exactly as Jesus told them it would be. And so, as we've seen over and over and over again, the words of God always prove true. And the words of God are always reliable. Next, Mark jumps ahead to the evening and the actual celebration of the Passover meal. This would be Thursday evening now, verses 17 to 19. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful. And to say to him one after another, is it I? Now picture this, Jesus and his disciples, his closest friends, these men that he has been through everything with over the last few years, they are reclining together at table and they are celebrating this most sacred of feasts as an act of worship unto the Lord. And in the middle of the celebration, Jesus drops this bomb on them. I mean, you talk about bringing a party to a screeching stop. Jesus says, One of you is going to betray me. One who is eating with me. Now, I could imagine that you could have probably heard a pin drop after Jesus uttered, those words, right? The disciples would have been absolutely shocked to hear Jesus say this. Now, they may not have been surprised if Jesus had said, one of the Pharisees is going to betray me, or one of the scribes is going to betray me, or or one one of Herod's followers, or one of the Romans are going to betray me, but surely not one of them, his closest friends, his disciples, his brothers, surely not. They were devastated. They were filled with sorrow. They begin to ask one after the other, Jesus, surely, surely it's not me, is it? Verse 20, he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. And this was to fulfill the prophecy of Psalm 41, verse 9 which says, even my close friend, this this is written a thousand years earlier, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Again, Judas meant it for evil. Satan meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. Jesus continues in verse 21, for the Son of Man goes as it is written, of him. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am being betrayed and I am going to my death according to the foreknowledge and sovereign plan of God the Father. It was written that this should happen. 
It was written in Psalm 41 that Christ would be betrayed. It was written in Isaiah 53 that He would carry our sorrows, that He would be pierced for our transgressions, that He would be crushed for our iniquities, that He would bear the punishment that would bring us peace. Everything was happening according to the sovereign plan of God the Father. God meant it all for good. But many would pause here. They would say, well, if this was God's plan, and if Judas was acting in accordance with God's plan, then how can God hold Judas responsible for his actions? That seems like it would be unfair, right? If Judas is is acting out the sovereign plan of God, how can he possibly be held responsible for what he's doing? But what does Jesus say? Does Jesus absolve Judas because he was acting in accordance to God's plan? No. He continues in verse 21. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It you can't say things any stronger than this. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. This is one of the many passages in Scripture that teaches simultaneously both the sovereignty of God over all things and the responsibility of man for his choices, his actions, and his sin. Now, we've already seen this in Genesis 50 in the story of Joseph, right? Joseph says to his brothers, he says, you meant it for evil. In other words, you're responsible for your sin. You're responsible for your sinful choices and actions. But God meant it for good. God is sovereign even over your sinful choices and actions. Another scripture that teaches this clearly, both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, is Acts chapter 2, verse 23, where Peter is preaching at Pentecost. And Peter says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter is teaching, first of all, that God is sovereign over everything, including the death of His Son. It says, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But Peter is also teaching that man is responsible for his sin. Peter says, you crucified Him. You killed Him. You delivered Him into the hands of lawless and wicked men. So it's not an either or thing. We don't have to choose between which am I going to believe in God's sovereignty or am I going to believe in man's free choice? And I have to choose one or one or the other. That's not what scripture tells us. God's sovereignty does not cancel out man's ability to make choices. And man's ability to choose does not negate the sovereignty of God. God in no way coerced Judas to betray Jesus. God did not force Judas 
against his will to betray Jesus. That was Judas's sinful choice that he made. And yet, God in his sovereignty intended from the beginning of time to, to use what Judas meant for evil, what the devil meant for evil, to accomplish the greatest good that the world has ever known. And we see then, we see the goodness of God's plan, the goodness of God's work as we finish our passage for this morning, verses 22 through 25. It says, And as they were eating, he took bread, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. If you'll remember, the Passover was celebrated to commemorate the miraculous deliverance of the Jews out of slavery in Egypt, right? We read that in Exodus chapter 12, if you want to go back and read that. And in the first Passover, the Jews were to kill a lamb, slaughter a lamb, and paint its blood on the doorposts of their homes. And when God saw the blood of the lamb, his wrath and judgment would pass over that home and they would be saved and delivered. What a beautiful picture of the gospel that is. And so in the Passover, in the celebration of the Passover, the Jews looked back to how God had delivered them from slavery. And yet the Passover was more than that. They were also to look forward in anticipation of God's ultimate deliverance through His Messiah. John the Baptist makes this clear in John one twenty nine. When seeing Jesus, he proclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, the old covenant could not save us. There was no animal sacrifice that had the power to save us. There, there was no, adhere, no attempt to adhere to the law that could possibly save or justify us. The book of Hebrews makes this clear over and over again. Hebrews 10.4, it says, For it is impossible, not unlikely, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It says later in, in the same chapter, Hebrews 10, 12 through 14, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now what was it, what, what was the offering that Christ made? It was himself, right? Christ himself was the perfect sacrifice, the spotless Lamb of God. What the law was powerless to do, Christ did. 
What types and shadows could never do, could never accomplish, Christ did and Christ accomplished. Jesus took the bread and the wine from the Passover meal. And he said, I am doing something new. I am making a new covenant with you. Instead of, instead of eating this bread and drinking of this cup, you will now feast on me, on my body, on my blood. Now, not in a literal sense, as the Roman Catholics teach, but in a spiritual sense. When we come to the Lord's table through, through a mysterious work of the Holy Spirit, we are by faith enabled to feast on the body and blood of Christ for the nourishment of our souls and the strengthening of our faith each and every time we come to His table. Christ is truly present in the sacrament. This is more than just, hey, let's remember something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's more than that. If that's all it were, we really wouldn't need to celebrate it every single week, right? Because there, there are a lot of different ways that we can remember the sacrifice of Christ. But Christ is truly present in the sacrament in a spiritual sense. And we are truly able to feast on Him, on His body and His blood. In the New Covenant, Jesus has taken His own blood and painted it on the doorposts of our hearts. And when God sees the blood of His precious Son, His judgment and wrath will pass over those who are part of the covenant, who are in the covenant. God meant it for good. So in closing this morning... If I were to ask you what the most wicked act in all of human history was, right? Many people might think of the Holocaust, might think of the slave trade, you might think of any of the number of genocides that have occurred throughout human history. And as, as terrible and as atrocious as those events were, they were sinful acts carried out by sinful people against other sinful people. But the betrayal of Jesus, the Son of God, the crucifixion, the execution of the Lamb of God, were sinful acts carried out by sinful people against the spotless Lamb of God. Judas meant it for evil. Satan meant it for evil. But God meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. God took the most evil acts that have ever, ever been committed, and through them He offers you the body and blood of His beloved Son. And if you will trust in Christ, if you will put your faith in Him, then God will clothe you with the righteousness of His Son, and the wrath and the judgment that we so greatly deserve will pass over us. Glory to God. And so I encourage you this morning to take heart. 
take heart in whatever you're going through, in whatever you're facing this morning. Some of you have been through horrendous trials in the last years. Some of you are going through them today. And Satan intends those for evil. And he intends those for your harm. But God intends it for your good. Romans 8 tells us that God is working all things, all things without exception for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. God, if you are a believer, God is working for your good. And God has already worked the greatest good through the death of His Son, the body and blood of His Son, which were given for you. And in a few moments, we are going to celebrate that glorious truth together. But let's pray. Father, we are completely humbled that in your sovereignty, you chose to save us. Lord, we did not deserve that. We could never deserve that. We are lawbreakers. We have transgressed your law. We have failed to love you with all of our hearts and souls and minds and with all of our strength. Lord, not even for a moment do we love you like we should. And yet, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we, when we were weak and helpless and, un, and unable to save ourselves in any way, you had mercy on us and you sent your Son to be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities to take our punishment on Himself that we might have peace and be reconciled to You. Lord, for this, we give You all thanks and all glory. Thank You that even now, no matter what we're going through, You are working for our good. And what Satan has meant for evil against us, You have meant for good. And You are working for good. And though Satan would seek to devour and destroy, yet... The promise in your word is that we are kept in your hands and no one will ever tear us out of your hands. Lord, so for that, we give you thanks. We give you all honor, glory, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We get to celebrate this morning, and it is truly a celebration, um, what we heard about this morning that what Judas meant for evil, that what Satan meant for the greatest of evil, God worked for the absolute greatest good. The death of His beloved Son has resulted in an offering of us that if we have trusted in Him, that we are invited to come and feast at His table, to feast on the very body and blood of Christ. Um, and, and that we might enjoy um, and be united to our Savior for all of eternity. And so we're going to do that this morning. We're going to celebrate that this morning. I'll ask our communion helpers if they would come and prepare to serve. And if you are if you are a believer, if you have placed your trust in Jesus as Lord and as Savior, um, then we invite you to come and participate in the supper this morning. If you are not a believer... The Scripture tells us that 
that if you come and partake in an unworthy manner that you you eat and drink judgment upon yourself. And so, as we say every week, um, we ask you not to participate if you're not a believer, but we are sincerely praying that this morning you would hear the call of God and that you would put your trust in Jesus the Son, in His perfect sacrifice, and be saved, that you would join this covenant in which we have the privilege of participating. But if you've trusted in Christ, if, if you um, believe in Him for your salvation, then I invite you to come, partake of the elements, and go back to your seats. And in a moment, we'll take these together. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Let's give thanks. Father, we thank you. For your son, we thank you for the broken body of Jesus by which we are made whole. We thank you for his spilled blood by which our sin is washed away and we are made pure and clean. Lord, thank you that you have taken our our, our stained and ugly garments and, and replaced them with pure garments, Lord. Thank you that we can stand before you, Father, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Thank you that you have justified us, you have adopted us, you are sanctifying us, and you will glorify us, and that's a promise, Lord. And all through the death of Christ, your Son. And so we give all glory, all praise, all honor to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. If you'd put your hands in a receiving position. I want to read to you a benediction this morning from Hebrews chapter 8, verses 10 through 12. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen.